0: Welcome to the Ag Emerge Podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation.
1: Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase.
0: And I'm your host, Monty Bottons. Thanks for joining us.
1: Before we jump into the podcast, we'd like to let you know about our Aggie Merge Summer Summit. Mark your calendar for August 4th and 5th. Come see Monty in person and experience soil health and regenerative agriculture in action on the Bottons Family Farm in Cambridge, Illinois. From the basics to the wild side, get your questions answered and engage in thought-provoking discussion as we share years of experience in a full transparency farm tour. Oh, and you know, we can't be all work and no play, so to wrap up the event, we'll spend a fun evening together in the pasture to enjoy dinner and live music at the 4th Annual Concert with the Cows, hosted by Grateful Grays. So, to get more information and register for the event, head on over to our website at asn.farm. And now, on to our show. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Paul Grieve, Pasture Bird's co founder and VP of Sales and Marketing, located in Temecula, California. Paul shares with us Pasture Bird's awesome story and what has driven their team to reinvent American poultry production. They've worked to scale the production of regenerative poultry, raising over 2 million chickens without antibiotics or drugs. They've kept their focus on the land, the animal, and the consumer all while improving soil every year. Paul says we use nature as our template and move animals to fresh pasture every day. Listen in as Monty and Paul discuss this great American story of passion, innovation, and regeneration. Welcome
0: everyone to this episode of the Aggie Merge podcast. I am honored to have Paul Grieve with us today. Uh, he is a 10th generation poultry farmer from the heart of poultry country in Arkansas. Is that right? Did I get that right, Paul?
2: <laughs> yeah, close. Just oh, wait, a, wait, your first generation <laughs> in
0: the desert of California, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wrong spot. well we're uh there actually was a lot of poultry here maybe um 50 to 75 years ago and like most of the ag um it's largely just been developed and lands got real expensive and so you just don't you don't see much farming uh, at least animal farming happening out this way anymore so i guess i think the politics may have had something to do with it too i don't know
0: That could be. So let, let me do a better introduction. Paul is actually a first-generation farmer, which that's that's really important. And I think people need to pay attention because it's great to see innovative minds coming into agriculture, using regenerative ag techniques and ag technology to make it happen and address a market that's really growing. And the other thing is, is he started in Temecula, California, which Temecula today is known mainly for wine and houses. So uh, it's neat to see animal production back in Temecula. So... Tell us your story. How'd you get started? What are you crazy? You you know, you had a great job and then, then you started chasing chickens. What tell us how this all happened, Paul. Yeah.
2: It's it's not the normal way to get into farming, I guess, but um, we always say it goes back to a tick bite. You know, it's a, I I went in the Marine Corps right after college and I was in sniper school in Virginia and um, all of us were laying in the woods for, you know, three, four days. And you do tick checks afterwards and everybody's got a bunch of ticks all over them and we're in the backwoods of Virginia. And so um, one of the ones that I had, one of the 77 happened to um, give me Lyme disease. And um, from that, you know, get the big bullseye rash. And then shortly after I started getting a lot of weird inflammation and brain fog and just excess fatigue and stuff. And um, this is about 2007, 2008, started eating differently and feeling really differently. And that was the first time I ever thought about food really because before that I grew up in downtown Seattle city kid never thought about where my food came from you know grew up on McDonald's and um we didn't really think much of it you know just just food is was what what it was um when I came back from Iraq my family was all pretty interested in it and they were actually just joking around about getting some chickens for the backyard my in-laws had a place out in Temecula they had a couple acre backyard and um we sort of Liked what Joel Salatin was doing in Virginia. We thought that was some pretty cool stuff. And we were really all just joking about it. My brother-in-law apparently wasn't because he kind of disappeared from the room, came back about 10 minutes later. And he said, oh, hey, guys, I just ordered those 50 chicks we were talking about. And they're going to be here in two weeks. And uh, none of us had ever raised chickens or anything more than maybe a family dog before that. So it was uh, right into the fire with it.
0: That's a great way to start. If you're going to do it, just do it.
2: Yeah, I mean, we going back and looking at it, it would have been great to like read that book behind you or some other books. But really, our first step was to order animals. And then, you know, then we read uh, Pastor Poultry Prophets next. And that really became our Bible for like the next three years. Um, 50 birds, you know, was meant for the family. But I put some things up on social media back then um, and friends and family started to get real interested and excited and they started to put down deposits and pretty soon we had collected deposits on all 50 of these little birds that weren't even ready for for harvest yet and i remember i mean i remember that may june 2012 being out in the backyard with you know an ipad with a with a youtube video showing how to process chickens and right next to it was our first chicken and it was like all right i guess we're just gonna figure this out you know and um our first really like our first ten thousand or so birds we harvested right there in the backyard and uh, I always say I used to have a a lot more friends because we'd invite friends over to come help us and before you know it you know they're going "Ah, yeah I'm kind of busy that day you know it's just not the most glamorous job on the farm um, harvesting poultry and sweltering desert heat so um, yeah we (laughs) lost a lot of friends during that time
0: it's like asking your friends to help you move but only worse
2: Yeah, exactly. And now uh, they all want to come over for for the barbecues now that we have the meat. But back then, you know, I remember who was coming and who wasn't. So 50 birds um, sold out really fast. 2012 kind of fast forward the next, you know, the next flock, we decided to order 100 because 50 did so well. And kind of the same thing happened and then did 200. And then, you know, kind of kept just every kind of dollar of profit would go reinvest right back into order in the next bigger batch of chicks and building another coop and kind of um 50 became 100 became 200 became 500 became 5,000 eventually and uh my wife and I found ourselves kind of at a crossroad I mean I had a great six-figure job in Newport Beach and um you know uh, that, that was a great lifestyle but this farm thing was calling us and she grew up in Temecula I'm sure you're familiar with towns where when you grow up in a town like Temecula Kind of the goal is to never come back to Temecula, and so she said two things: I'll never marry military, and I'll never move back to Temecula. And you know, before she knew it, both of those, both of those were kind of shot. So we were moving back in. We moved in with um, her folks. Actually, there was nine of us at one point that all decided to move back into the little seventeen hundred square foot house and just reinvest every dollar that we could into the business and try to get it to grow. And um, we, we caught a really big break in about 2014. Um, we were contacted by the LA Lakers and the team chef at that time was looking for the highest quality, most nutrient dense animal protein that they could possibly find for their players. This is when Kobe Bryant and Steve Nash were getting towards the end of their career. And they really, they, they didn't care what the cost was. They were going to spend whatever it took to get the best stuff they could. And um, they came out, they toured the farm and they became huge supporters of us. And yeah, it's only, you know, 12 or 15 guys and some staff members, but they're also seven foot tall and they, they eat like, you know, an enormous amount of food. So that became a huge thing for us. And shortly after that, the Lakers, um, the Dodgers ended up calling and doing the same thing. So our first two sort of wholesale accounts were the Lakers and the Dodgers. And that opened our eyes to, there's probably something bigger than this little tiny direct to consumer you know, CSA really style operation, which was Primal Pastures. That's our original family business. And we said, okay, I bet that there's a bigger demand, you know, a more conventional commodity kind of demand for pasture raised chicken done in this unique way. So that really was the birth of pasture bird at that point, 2015
0: that's a that's quite a story so you know you glossed over a lot of things and I'm you know for the farmers out there considering doing this and getting to that kind of scale it's one thing you definitely identified with some key uh, partners there Um, you know not only it wasn't that many people you were feeding but I mean the promotional opportunities and mentions out of that had to be phenomenal
2: it really was and it was a confidence booster for us too you know true a lot of the a lot of this business thing has just been Teetering on, you know, lack of confidence and overconfidence and trying to get it right in the middle somewhere. And so it was just an awesome confirmation for us two years into the business that, I mean, the Lakers who live off of their nutrition, they, that's what they make their check off of, that they would kind of recognize that and see us. And it was a lot of, we're all sports guys. So we got to go up and walk through the clubhouse and meet players and, you know, see cool. the dugout and walk on the field. It was a pretty cool moment for us.
0: Well, it has to help to uh, doing what you do because you know farming's hard work uh, being a marine uh, you're used to embracing the suck and yeah, uh, yeah. you know you're you're used to being up for hours on you know days on end and uh you know so that that part didn't hurt in your startup days you know that experience no. and then the other thing too is you know really if you look at that when you isolated those two things you're you, you were a sni- a market sniper in that case you were really yep targeting in and i think too many people try to do too much for too many for for everyone right versus being very focused on your on your niche and you know that whole nutrient density story then got you to thinking about okay who else does nutrient density apply to and way you went so kind of interesting the the background and how that fed into your farming career you know
2: well and you talk about sniping so that's interesting because staying focused has been a hallmark of our success i think there's been a million shiny objects, um, we, did, we actually wanted to be beef cattle farmers, that was the whole goal. And when we looked at where the kind of, you do the SWOT analysis, right? Strengths, weakness, opportunities, threats. Um, we looked at the whole dynamic, we looked at our weather, we looked at land prices, we looked at how much rainfall we get, a big huge part for us was um, USDA processing capacity. And so when we looked at all those things, said so as much as we want to be, you know, regenerative beef cattle farmers here in Southern California, the desert, chicken just makes a whole lot more sense. And, and one other really important one, capital, we had no money. So your turnover, I, mean, I was so making much quicker good money, but I was spending a lot of money, you know, to live in Newport beach too. And so when we came into the business, four of us put in 500 bucks each and just to buy a 20 cow herd, you know, and, and to have a cow calf or to finish, it, it, there was no way we could have done that. But with chicken, you know, you're seven weeks from hatch to finish. And I can kind of push out a credit card bill just far enough to, to kind of put the chick on and the feed on and get this bird processed in time to collect a deposit and actually keep that cycle essentially working. So we, I mean, for all those reasons, as much as we want to be beef cattle farmers, poultry is what jumped right out to us. And I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people doing a great job with with grass-fed and grass-finished beef out there. Mm-hmm. And so why are we going to go try to compete in a market that's totally, you know, saturated? You can go to any local health food store and find really good grass-fed, grass-finished beef, at least in our area, farmer's market. But there's nobody doing pasture-raised chicken around here. And so that was a good place for us to enter the market. It's also sunny 340 days a year here. So it's a great place to do year-round Um, chicken. And so for all those reasons, we kind of sniped the opportunity of poultry and we tried to not get too distracted. Even when our customers started asking for beef, you know, for a while, we refer to our kind of neighboring farms and stuff like that. But then we met some old school ranchers that just didn't want to talk to people. And so we said, okay, well, what if instead of raising our own beef cattle, what if we went full transparency, started buying cattle from these guys finished and selling them to our customers under our label, um, and I think that that was ended up being a really good decision. And instead of trying to be beef, chicken, lamb, pork, you know, wild fish, try to do everything ourselves, we became really good at chicken, and then we aggregated some of those other proteins for um, the convenience factor for for our customers. And uh, that, and many other things, I think focus has been really key to our success.
0: No, I, that's interesting. So let's talk a little bit about how you've been able to take it and go from you know five hundred, two hundred. 5,000, 50,000, you know, you've been a a long path on on moving from small to large, you know, so I imagine you mentioned pasture poultry profits, Uh, you probably started with the original Salatin chicken Tractor, or chicken saw, yep. or whatever, and you know, moving it by hand across pasture, you know. Then I, I know just to, because when we were setting it up, I, I was looking at uh, your your social media posts and set, and we set up the mobile range coops. You know, the yep. roughly twenty by forty. Uh, oh, you have those green too. greenhouses on skids. Yep, yep, yep. nice. And uh, but now. Um, if you're on the YouTube uh, version of the podcast right here, if you're looking in the background, tell us about what is the the latest and greatest you and your team have developed right behind you on the screen.
2: Yeah. So we developed, um, it's the really common path to go from the Salatin coop to the mobile range coop. And it's so funny because every time you jump into a new thing, you think, all right, this is what we we'll do forever. You know, this is going to be the forever. So we went from a wooden Salatin coop that we pulled by hand to an actual, uh, metal framed, Uh Um, a metal frame Salatin coop and we put a push bar on it so we could come up with a Kubota and just push it forward. And I mean, that decreased chore time by 75% being able to just push them instead of pull them. Uh, And then, you know, we thought that that would be thousands of birds and and all this stuff. But then shortly later we learned about the mobile range coop and that's just a floorless greenhouse, essentially Uh, pulled manually fed, manually watered more or less manually too. Um, and the, the real genesis of what's behind me, which is the automated range coop now is just this desire starting in 2015 or 2016. None of us in my family, none of us came up with a lot of money. And after a bit of doing this business and selling birds for what we have to sell them for at our small scale, um, 30 bucks, $35 for a whole chicken. I mean, it's great for people that can afford it, but the way we came up, my folks and you know my in-laws—they could have never afforded to buy that kind of a product. And we kind of just got to this point in the business where we said that's—it's cool. I mean, I love selling these expensive kind of farmers market niche products, but I also, I also would love to produce something that was more accessible to more people. And I really believe in regenerative, and I really believe in the nutrient density piece of this. Um, and so, what would it take to kind of like make this product? premium over like a Trader Joe's or a a Sprouts or kind of one of these products that more people could have have access to. And it came back to scale and it came, a lot of it came back to the labor involved. So when you're out there and you know this because you've got mobile range coops, when you're out there pulling each coop, by tractor every single day, you know, we still have 70 or so of those mobile range coops. We haven't replaced them all yet. We, We would like to, but we haven't yet in, um, I estimate that we have close to a dollar per bird in labor alone. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the industry, yeah. You know, I mean, I would say the industry—that's all the big guys. Essentially, everybody else—they're—they're um, they're well under ten cents. And so we're ten x just on labor alone. And then you factor in buying chicks off the shelf, buying feed off the shelf, buying—you know—all all the processing is off the shelf. And quickly it adds up, and we got to add your own margin to it. Um, it adds up to this really expensive So We said, all right, well, how, what would it take to, A, reduce the labor, and then, B, get vertically integrated so that we have our own hatchery, feed mill, processing, logistics, transportation. Um, and so I think that we've solved, that we're on the cusp of solving both of those. So the labor situation, we had to make the coops bigger to allow for more modern infrastructure to go into them. So in a mobile range coop, that's like a 500 or 600 bird system. It's really hard to invest in augers, feed pans, you know, solar power, any ventilation control, all the things that the modern industry is doing de facto, even in their oldest houses, they have climate control through a whole house controller. They have an auger that pulls feed out of a silo and puts it in the pans for you. The drinkers are all, you know, really dialed. They're not leaking all over the place and, and they do a really good job with water distribution. So we wanted to take like the best... From the industry, but then combine it with what we think is really special about pasture poultry, which is moving birds to fresh grass every day. So in about 2017, um, our kind of favorite group, APA, the American Pasture Poultry Producers Association, was on a roadshow with Jeff Maddox, who's kind of a pioneer there, and Dan Cody. Dan was, um, he had originally worked for White Oak Pastures. Then he worked for Cobb Creek farms out of Texas. He's also worked on Joel Salatin's place and he shared this vision for scaling pasture poultry to a million chickens a week. And that was actually, it was funny because that's always been my exact number. It's like, man, we could figure out how to scale this to a million birds a week. I think that we can get the costs so close to conventional that nobody's going to have any reason not to buy pasture poultry. And, um, I sort of wanted to do it and I was dreaming about it. He had a plan on how to do it. And so the big innovation was instead of pulling, it sounds simple, right? But instead of pulling the coops long ways, we're going to pull them short ways. And um, broiler chickens, they just don't want to walk 150 or 200 feet on a hot summer day. They're just not really going to do it. So we mm-hmm. flipped the coop around, we jacked it up and put it on casters. And uh, we motorized the casters off of a solar panel. and so. So the way that the system works now, what you're looking at behind me is um, it's up on wheels and it, it drives itself every day. So it's not like a guy has to come out and pull it with a tractor. I mean, it's a push of a button or really it can be even automated to a timer um, where it's going to kick on first thing in the morning in the heat of the summer uh, when the ground's still cool. Or it's going to kick on right in the in the warmest part of the day in the middle of winter when the ground's really cold um, and we and we want it to warm up a bit. And it's gonna move really, really slow. So, what you're seeing behind me, it would take five to seven minutes just to move to a whole new spot of pasture. And you understand all the benefits of that because you're a pasture poultry farmer, but some people don't, you know. Well, that you're talking
0: the width on that Paul is what a sixty foot wide or hundred foot wide fifty foot. So you're taking five to seven minutes to move fifty feet. So the birds have plenty of opportunity in that. But I think for those who aren't doing pasture poultry, that fresh grass is a key. And 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 the other thing to keep in mind too is those birds get bigger. They eat yep. that more down quicker. So I mean, it gives you that control to where when they're small, they may not need a full width move, or big exactly. they, they may need de- may need to be moved twice. Just exactly what your goals are and such. And like you said too, because it's automated now, you could put sensors in there because sometimes you have grass that's six inches tall, sometimes it's foot tall. You know, grass just varies. But you could have the thing automatically move forward. At whatever speed that you want, based on, oh, looks like it's eight down, move it forward. and But it can only move forward if the ground temperature is this or the air temperature is this. And you could build all those parameters. Once you get it moving on its own, oh, man.
2: The world becomes your oyster. and We haven't I'm done gonna, a lot yeah. of that, but I'm right there with you. That, that's what it opens up, is that oh, automation. Cool. And you can build an algorithm based on manure distribution. So you get perfectly even manure distribution or... And you, know, you, you could do something based on soil moisture or temperature. I mean, there's a million ways to do it.
0: And you know how much they eat and all you yep. got to do is how many pounds they eat, have weigh scales on your, on your silos on the end. They ate that much move it. Cause you know, if, if they eat a hundred pounds, they make this much manure. That's just, you know, it's a straight line correlation. So.
2: Yeah. It's Neither. a, it's really, really cool. And then. I was going to kind of explain for people that don't understand the difference of pasture raised or say free range, you know, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people think they're the same thing, but Uh. really the way that the industry at large does this is it's stationary housing. So whether it's organic or free range or just no antibiotics, really any label that you'll see in the store is based off of a stationary housing Mm -hmm. model with varying degrees of outdoor access. But what that does is the birds are essentially eating, sleeping, drinking, and pooping all in the same place, you know, every single day, it would be like, it would be like, you know, I I use this as crude, but if you kind of lived in your bathroom and just never flushed your toilet, you know, it's a, it's, 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 it smells from a long ways away. It comes at an environmental cost um, and it comes at a bird kind of health cost too. You have immune system function that's degraded from animals living with a lot of ammonia. Um, and sure, you know, people think, oh, well, they have unlimited access to 800 acres of pasture. Well, you know, look, they're chickens, first of all. So they're prey animals. There's, they want to close to their buddies. People they are called the they have the food and water. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> <They're afraid laughs> so they may pop their head out a bit, but they're not going out there for most of their life. They're spending most of their life inside the barn. Um, and that's where they feel safe and comfortable and secure. And so instead of trying to make a chicken do something it really doesn't want to do. Um, the whole pasture poultry concept is that we're going to actually move their house every single day so that the manure transfers from being a big liability to actually being an asset and really restoring um, these grasslands that you put them on. So we've seen unbelievable outcomes. Uh, We got on a 50-year conventional potato field when we first got onto our farm and it was degraded. I mean, it was really the nutrients were just mined out of it and we could barely get weeds to grow that first year even with all the water we wanted to put down and we got a few kind of leafy nasty looking weeds and um now i mean we're growing stands of grass that are three feet tall right here in the desert and um, organic matter tripled biodiversity is kind of up 5x you know and um organic organic matter increases water retention which is huge in a desert environment because we get all of our rain in about three months. And so when we get a big three or four inch storm here and you don't have the soil that's able to hold on to it, it's all running off and you end up catching, you know, if we get 11 inches of rain in a year and you have tilled soil, you may only catch two or three inches of that. So everything's going to have to get pulled back out of the water table. Um, But when we get this healthy permanent pasture, we're catching like 32 million additional gallons on our 140, 160 acre farm that wouldn't have been caught before. And um, what that does is it gives us all 11 of those inches. Yeah, it's not a lot and it's all coming in one season, but we're catching all of it now instead of having it run off. So it's just, um, it's been a lot of fun to get this system up and running. I think there's so much more that can be added to it. So I'm really excited even for the next five years of what it looks like. Um, and now, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar, but we have, we have the backing of Purdue as well. And so that is really where we solve this vertical integration piece, which is the other half of the coin, um, to help bring costs down and to really keep it capitalized. And honestly, to bring in the best and brightest from conventional agriculture, because I think for too long, the pasture raised space or sort of the regenerative space has thought, Oh, I think big ag is terrible and stupid and bad thing and it and vice versa right and there's really a lot that we can learn from each other and so it's been a really one of the highlights of my career 10-year career in ag is being able to sit down with these guys have honest real conversations about where we have shortcomings um, and how they can kind of jump in and help we're not chicken guys you know they go in and they start talking about all the different you know growth rates and feed conversions and, you know, livability and all these things. We don't know any of that stuff. We we kind of figured out how to move a lot of chickens to fresh pasture each day. We're not like, you know, PhD chicken guys by any means. So it's been a lot of fun to learn from them in those respects. And I think teach them a few things too, you know.
1: We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show.
0: So I did want to uh, jump into that uh, partnership with Purdue a little bit. But so you mentioned earlier, uh, currently today, are you then uh, utilizing Purdue on the hatchery side? Or do you do? You own hatching? Okay, so no, they no, we,
2: we, uh, we actually received an investment from them in about 2018. And by, by the middle of 2019, we realized we wanted to, that was our dating, you know. And by 2019, we wanted to get married. Uh, there was just too many things that were making sense for our mission as pasture Bird, which was to really make nutrient dense and regenerative food more accessible and affordable. And so we wanted a partner. Um, and so we, they acquired our company kind of full stop. My entire team became Purdue employees. I'm actually technically, I'm a Purdue employee right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've all stayed on you know, for the last two and a half years to help grow this. And we're just as excited about it now as we were, you know, five years ago because I think it gives us the ability to really hit on those goals. So we have their hatcheries. um, We operate out of their feed mills. We operate out of their processing plants. So Purdue
0: does have those feed mills and processing plants in California.
2: They do, yeah. Okay, Because the
0: California market's uh, for those that don't know is, is dominated a lot by foster farms, you know, it I is. believe. And then I, I didn't know if per, I know Purdue's, more. Well, I thought they were more back East, but they've, they are in that market then too. They're
2: heavily concentrated in the East coast, really. Um, the Delmarva peninsula, which is at Del- Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, kind of, that's, that's their stomping grounds. It's where the business was born a gotcha. um, hundred years ago. 1920 is when they were formed. Um, out here it is dominant. We, we thought, to be honest, we thought we would have partnered with Foster or with uh, Mary's it's another big chicken company out this way in, in California. Um, they're in our backyard. We got a lot of respect for what they do. I mean, we kind of just would have thought that that's who we would have worked with. But what happened was, uh, Ryan Purdue, who's the fourth generation Purdue, he's, he's Frank Purdue's grandson. Who's the guy that was always on the commercials, you know, back in the eighties and stuff. Um, he actually lives in California and he has a huge interest in regenerative, um, Mm -hmm. and in pasture raised. And, you know, he's got his family's chicken business, but he's kind of, he's also understands the California market, the premium market, and he understands regenerative. And so he came out for a farm tour, um, in early 2018. And, and I think we just kind of hit it off where he saw the world very much the same way we did, where it's amazing. I mean, all these kind of niche farmers market producers. That's great, but nobody's filling the gap for that mid-tier Absolutely. pasture-raised national alternative. And so why do you have you know, free range and then it drops all the way to farmers market? There's nothing in between anywhere. And I think um, Purdue is a company, say what you want about them, but they're a company that um, doesn't want to fake stuff. And so if they're going to do something, they want to do it for real. Um, and they saw the writing on the wall with a lot of people doing fake pasture raised and outdoor access and all this stuff. They have a huge free range business. Mm -hmm. And I give them a lot of credit because they could go today and slap a pasture raised label on all of those free range chickens. And the USDA couldn't say a word about it, you know, but they decided to take the high road and work with somebody who is authentically doing pasture raised. And, uh, it's been a really Unique and I think special. And I always use the word cautiously optimistic because, you know, we still have a lot of work to do with them. Um, but I would say, if anything, our standards have only really increased since working with them. And I've been able to have the capital, you know, without having to go out and talk to investors and go raise money and sell our soul and all this stuff. We've, we've been able to have the capital to really develop this into multiple states now and have the processing too, because back in the day, we were doing an off the shelf processor. And if at any point in time, that guy could have called us up and said, you know what? I don't like you anymore. And I don't want to process your birds. And we would have been out of business. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, this gives us a lot more resiliency to have our own plant at our disposal.
0: You know, at your million bird a week goal. I mean, what, what mid-sized plant or independent plant has right. that capacity? It just exactly, doesn't exist. So then, that would require you to build that plant, right? So the, it's it's bad enough being your own hatchery, right? <laughs> you know, right? And, and raising them, but then getting into having your own processing—that's a—that's a whole.
2: Well, when you go problem. back to this sniper conversation, and it's like, I don't want to innovate on things that people are already doing a good job on, right? So we look at hatchery. I'm sure there's areas you could do better with hatchery. I don't know, though. I think Purdue's excellent at hatching a quality, right. consistent chicken. I look at processing. Could they, you know, are there areas for improvement everywhere? Yeah, obviously. But am I, am I, is my passion to go and try to innovate within processing and but do you, something really special? Not really, you know.
0: And you're making such it, it, the changes that are possible to make there are such small incremental incremental change. Incremental changes, no, just exactly. small, but what you're doing on how you're raising them, that's a monstrous change in, in nutrient density, yep. you know, ecosystem services, health, all these things. It, it's a huge change. And, and I, I appreciate the fact that you saw that and focused on that.
2: I'll say one thing that you'll appreciate too, is even really only half or so of their life is what I'm innovating on. So for years we start, struggled with brooding brooding is actually the hardest part of raising a pastured broiler it's where it's where you make or break your money uh it's it's where everything either goes if it goes good in the brooder the rest of the flock is going to be great if it goes bad in the brooder you're going to have a terrible time recovering from it so even that we took a step back we looked at everything and said well if we could have unlimited capital to build the perfect brooder for chickens what would it look like and we looked at shipping containers and greenhouses and mobile and all these different things and what we you know we actually ended up settling on you probably know you'd better be able to guess
0: i haven't checked
2: this part out go ahead tell me a conventional chicken house is the perfect brooder a stationary conventional poultry house because you have have ventilation they they have everything dialed in for those first two to two and a half weeks of life for that bird and and they're the foremost leading experts in the world at taking care of little baby chicks, and so we saw this opportunity to partner with Purdue as well. Because instead of reinventing the wheel on brooding, why don't we let them do what they're do what they're good at and put a few extra birds into a few different houses? We'll pull them out when they're two and a half weeks old, and then we'll use those for our for our. Um, pasture so well, and that's, that's really what we're doing with them now and it's working amazing from that perspective too
0: it's a beautiful idea because on their conventional birds they're doing in-house brooding typically right exactly so they're doing in-house brooding they'll put like a, a tile or something across just to kind of section it off where they only get a portion of the barn so you heat control that portion of the barn and you're like well they're using a quarter of the barn at that time uh can i just have the other end is what you're doing
2: that's all we're doing yeah so and it's called it's hardly call no extra house brooding you know yeah. And it's awesome. really just a Great waste idea. of square footage for the first three weeks of their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can help actually make that site a little bit more, pro- not a ton, but a little bit more profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the birds are gone by the time um, it's it's time for pasture. So that's been a really cool kind of side note that really only chicken farmers understand, but it's, it's a big deal. But there's something you would
0: have had to come up with, and that's that. Set. Uh, you're exploring uncharted territory is that whole process of how do I get them now from the stationary barn to uh, the mobile range coop or the automated range coop. So talk to us about the innovations you've done there.
2: Yeah. The reason why we did the 150 foot by 50 foot autonomous coop is because that is our same ratio that we used in the Salatin coop and the same ratio we used uh, in the mobile range coop is at 1.25 square foot per bird per day. That feels like the perfect amount of manure distribution to give you a good impact on the land without being too much or too little. And so we knew that we wanted to be 6,000 birds. 6,000, five pound birds is what fits on a semi truck that'll bring you up to the slaughterhouse. And so we optimized the entire system off of filling up a full truck to go into the slaughterhouse. And then we built the square footage based on that. So it would have been done to go an extra 20 or 30 feet or an extra you know 500 square feet because it wouldn't fit on that truck anyways. So now we can fill up one truck per ARC. And so the way it works is the birds are in the brooder, two and a half weeks, uh, we pick them. Well, it depends on the time of year. They may be two and a half weeks they may maybe three weeks. It just depends on how cold it is, wherever we're going. Oh, rainy, you keep them longer. Yeah, exactly. Our standard is they have to be on pasture for the majority of their life, which means 51% or more. So we have a few you know, days in there of leeway, but um, we do want to get them out to pastures as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Um at that two and a half, three weeks mark, we have catch crew go in, pick them all up, load them into transportation crates mm-hmm. um late at night. They bring them down, they bring them onto the farm first thing in the morning, kind of drop them onto the ground, open them up, and then they're in the pasture coops for the rest of their life. Um that's usually 45 to 49 day total. So if 18 of that is used up by You know, brooding, then it's like 27 days out in the field. And every day, you know, like you said, we're moving them every single day to a fresh spot. When they're a little tiny, when they're only like 19 days old, maybe they need a half move every day. By the time they're 45 days old, maybe they need two moves per day. Usually they really don't. 45 is sort of the limit. If we went to 55 days, I would want to move them twice a day. But we like that, you know, one and a quarter square foot impact um, with like a five pound live weight chicken. I don't like raising broilers in these in these mobile systems much more than five pounds live weight. I think Mm -hmm. you could go to five and a half, but going up to like a six and a half or seven and a half pound bird, they just don't they don't move real well. And I don't know. I think it starts to get kind of weird with that. Uh,
0: And plus, I think the consumer wants chicken, not turkey. (laughs)
2: yeah exactly you start to get some of those birds that look like little mini turkeys right
0: (laughs) so that's pretty interesting you know thinking through the whole process what am i best at and focusing on what you're best at and what is somebody else best at let them do that and i think that's a that's a business principle no matter what industry you're in and i think everybody listening to this whether you're an ag tech entrepreneur or farmer you know you need to think about what are you best at do that and let someone else do what they do uh that's a and I like how you matched everything, no different than a corn farmer, taking exactly. a 24 row planter with a 12 row corn head, you know, or, you know, and you've got a grain cart that matches. I, we are doing that already. You just yep. thought through that is that, okay, my unit out is a truck, 6,000 birds and back figured it uh, smart, smart. And I yeah. love that. I love how you're using the the other barns for their brooding. I mean, and plus they're gaining that farmer is gaining revenue that he would exactly more and the extra energy he's taking to heat a little bit more of that barn is not twice as much. It's maybe 10% as much. So, you know, everybody wins. It's just a much better use of assets. So
2: yeah. And actually the more birds you have in there, the, the warmer it is. Yeah. yeah the, the more heat, body heat generate heat. themselves. Cool. Yeah. Definitely. Brooding. I mean, I don't know how you're dealing with brooding, but it was a constant struggle for us um, brooding a good quality, consistent bird. And, um, no matter if we're doing 50 birds or 5,000 brooding was just always a challenge. And so to be able to lean on Purdue with that side of it and let us really stay focused on the grow out piece, which is that three to seven weeks, you know, um, it just allows us to get really good at it. It's it's not that we couldn't do it. I'm sure we could have built our own brooders and do all that, but we wouldn't have gotten as good at the pasture side of it because we would have been dealing with everything else, you know? Mm -hmm
0: so a uh, 150 acre farm there or so that you started on in Temecula million birds per week. I can do the math here in my head uh, <laughs> that won't quite support a million birds a week. So I'm sure you've got an innovative approach. I know a little bit about it, but talk to us about how you're going to make that happen by partnering with other farms and other locations with ARC and those kind of things to, to make that uh, dream keep coming to reality.
2: Yeah, this is like the thing I'm maybe the most excited about um, for this whole space is that the whole model of scaling up pasture-raised livestock, especially poultry, is that we can now start to integrate with, with crop farms. Um, so most of what we're looking at from here on out, um, we're on three different ranches in Georgia right now. Georgia will be a huge area of growth for us. Mm-hmm. Um it's just a better place to farm chickens kind of carte blanche than California. There's a reason why it's the chicken belt, you know, um, they get rain. We don't, they, you know, um, land is a lot cheaper. The farmers really know poultry there. Um, we have a big Purdue plant out there that we can leverage. We have a small Purdue plant out here in California that we can leverage. I'm not saying I'm super passionate about farming in California that we are going to keep farming in California, but I think a lot of the growth, especially in this accessible and affordable space is gonna come out of Georgia. And so um, we're currently on three different farms. One is a hay field um, where the guy has about 500 acres, keeps about 300 of it in hay production. He used to throw synthetic fertilizer on that every single year um, to grow his hay crop. He already, so we didn't teach him about pasture poultry. He was already wanting to do pasture poultry. He's a third generation Purdue conventional chicken farmer. Um, and when he heard that Purdue was interested, he said, sign me up. I want to be the first one to do it. You know, that's Kenny young. We see him on some of our videos. Awesome guy, really amazing. Regenerative cattle story. And then he's using the poultry for added revenue on his farm, which is a lot of guys do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and he'll spread some of the chicken litter when he can and stuff, but (laughs) since adding these um, arcs, so he runs, I think four arcs right now in the last 18 months, he has not had to apply synthetic fertilizer once because he's using the chickens for that same purpose. And not only that, he's not having to spend the money on the synthetic fertilizer, and he's getting revenue from running the pasture poultry. So it's been this really cool deal. And that's some of the videos that you'll see on my social media is his farm. Mm-hmm. And the green stripe, you know, I always like to talk about that green stripe that you see behind the, uh, the ark. Um, when you see kind of like the light green, and then this just dark, rich green from the area that the chickens came through. I mean, that's nutrient density, that's building up organic matter, that's growing a better um, hay crop for him. And so he's getting more hay, he's getting a better hay crop with less input and more revenue. And so when you can get these capitalistic and regenerative combinations, where it's not like I don't need the government to go tell him to do that, he's making more money, and he's, you know, getting a better output. So um, that's where I think you can really start to see large scale change without having to rely on the government to go write policy or carbon credits or all these kind of don't think there's anything wrong with those. They just move really slow. And I don't trust either of them. I don't, you know, they, I don't trust either they, of those
0: too much. So. They, they move slower than your automatic range coop. So <laughs>
2: exactly.
0: <laughs> but no, it's, I, I agree with you when you can make the, um, the practice economically viable or more viable, problem solved right exactly uh, everything lines up and when when the stars align some magical things happen so
2: so that's a hay field and then now in georgia um we're on a rotational peanut cotton and wheat crop field that's our They we kind of just bought a new farm out there 200 plus acres you're
0: a peaton you're a, a peanut cotton wheat chicken rotation chicken so exactly. is the, the
2: rotation <laughs> <laughs> that's what i'm really excited about you know it's this concept that we jump on you know for example a thousand acre rotation that's mm-hmm. in corn and beans or it's in cotton and it's whatever it is it doesn't really Common matter bean, it's flat it's good boring. farm ground yeah and um instead of running fallow every three or five years throw chickens on it in a cover crop put the put the birds on there for two to three years and then you rotate the poultry, and just like it's another crop, and um, that gives you a massive amount of n- nutrient, you know, impact because cows are great, right? They're grazing the grass and they're pooping back on the ground, but they have they have more of an impact because they're heavy and they have hooves. But they have less of an impact because you're not bringing in any feed for them. So with chickens and pigs, you're bringing in all this tonnage of outside feed, and so all that's getting recycled through the bird um into organic fertilizer for the farm. And really it's not an either or because everywhere we run chickens, we run, we run cattle as well. Uh, as that grass starts to get healthy, chickens don't like really tall grass. You talked about the kind of eight inch mark. We like to keep our grass for the birds like four inches or lower. Um, mm-hmm. It helps a lot with the foot pad dermatitis and some of those things as well. So uh, we'll use the cattle as a lawnmower and we'll run the chickens and then we'll run that, you know, ultimately in rotation with crops. And I think that, you know, you talk about a million birds a week, that's like 10 to 12,000 acres required. Sounds like a huge number. But if you look at cropland, I mean, it's a a tiny fraction of one county in Georgia's cropland. I mean, it's nothing really in the grand scheme of things. And you look at what's happening with fertilizer prices right now, and, you know, kind of like import and export. I think there's just so much opportunity for fertility through increased like profit. I mean, I'm really excited about this reintegration of animals and plants together. It's been pretty sad to watch them separate over the last, you know, 70 years within agriculture. Um and so we grow all of our feedlot crops in the Midwest and then we ship all that out to California and you're a regenerative guy, so you know how I think, well, why why don't we just grow the cattle in the Midwest and raise them on the same grass, you know, and and, um, it feels like a conventional, it feels like a regenerative solution to a conventional problem that could happen really fast as opposed to, again, having to wait for policy or, government intervention or any of those things
0: one of the things we'll probably have to work on is the infrastructure because the infrastructure of of most of the processing plants has occurred in the like you said the chicken belt if you will but and that's because it costs labor costs labor availability and quality of the soil but all of a sudden you know if we look at this in rotation along with their the source of their corn crop coming out of the corn belt there really needs to be a little more chicken processing capacity in the corn belt in Absolutely. order to support this because farmers in that area would certainly be interested in having, you know, this as part of their rotation because those are high input crops that they're dealing with and, and being able to put chicken in rotation would be a, a tremendous soil advantage.
2: Well, I get the question That's all the time. time. Exactly. It's like, well, this model isn't good because you couldn't do it in the Midwest.
0: And it's like, okay, there's so many
2: problems I, with that mindset i, I don't I just know i know that
0: we're we're gonna to, to do it at your million birds a week you know uh
2: you're gonna need the midwest we're gonna
0: have to it you're gonna you can only be so far away from a plant right it, or
2: i uh, what is i just say um, eight hours of a plant no you really want to be two hours to the plant max okay. and you want okay. your hatchery and your feed mill all within that two hour radius sure. um I didn't say you, I wasn't saying you were saying that, but I do hear oh, that a no, lot. No People say, oh yeah, it's a, it, this is not a good model because how would I do it, you know, in Minnesota? And I say, well, look, there's two things to that. First of all, you can't grow corn in the winter in Minnesota either. That doesn't mean it's, it's a, corn is a bad crop or something. And second of all, I could give you a list of a dozen farmers in Minnesota that are doing pasture poultry right now. You know how they do it. They do it seasonally. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's a lot of innovation happening right now um, with high quality freezing um, and thawing and selling. And so I think if you could figure this out in those, you know, months that make sense, which is usually kind of like a March or April last harvest in that kind of like September, October, November time frame. Um, I think you're going to see the entire Midwest open up on this model, too. And it doesn't have to be year round. It helps. You know, it definitely helps. That's why we're targeting the Sun Belt to launch with. It helps amortize. I can put more flocks through per year. I can keep labor employed all year round. Yeah. Um, but it certainly doesn't have to be year-round modeled work so yeah
0: uh you make a great point i totally forgot about that you know in a, in a bigger scale model is that having it in the south georgia you know florida alabama mississippi those areas where you get lots of rain ability to grow grass 12 months out of the year that's a huge advantage plus in our our scenario and you know you've run into it before with row crop farmers if, if you get in an area where you don't have a perennial grass established you know as much as you like you know right now when we got three inches of rain out here with nothing growing uh, we've got what we call a mud mess, right? It's uh you know, yeah. You right. Just look at those conditions.
2: So talk to <sighs> us. Well, people are doing it. I mean, you've got dirt to swell right behind you. So, you know, full well, this has been happening with crops and cattle yeah. um, for over a decade, you know, just, just, and really honestly much longer than that, but um, the integration of animals and plants, I think Turkey is a huge opportunity in the Midwest because it's much more of a seasonal crop, you know? True. Um, and so I, I think that there's, it's going to be really fun. I've I always say we're in the golden age of regenerative right now. You're going to see so much happen in the next decade. And if, if you're kind of already thinking about it and practicing it, you've got a leg up and everybody's going to be coming in behind us here. Um, and it's going to be really fun to see what develops. And my goal is just that there would be authentic solutions put forward, not greenwash, you know, grabbing another
0: sticker on and
2: a label. label and sticking them on there because that's what we're already seeing a decent amount of. Um, so I'm really hoping, you know, there's genuine innovation that happens over the next decade because the market wants it. Um, and, that's, and nobody's really been talking about the nutrient density side of food yet. And when they start talking about that regenerative will really shine, you know,
0: that's the next thing I wanted to finish talking about was the market. Why do people want this? Who wants it? What what does that look like? How much are they willing to pay? What give us some insights into this market? Because you know, as farmers, we're like, oh, it's just, you know, it's chicken with maybe a different description to it, you know. Right. Um, talk to us about that customer and what they want, why they want that.
2: Well, it's funny you ask me this because I have a really different view than I think like most people do. I think most people right now are thinking consumers care deeply about the environment and they want to support programs that sequester carbon and that they take care of kind of the atmosphere. And I don't think that they're right about that. I think most people actually don't they're selfish. They do it for themselves. It's not that themselves. they don't care about the environment. It's just, they're it's not going to spend extra money to make my soil better, right? Unless it benefits them. They why want they the health, do that?
0: right? They're exactly. doing it for health is their motivation. And it's nice that it's for the environment.
2: Great, it's a but, nice add on, but, but I don't think help. most people are not going to spend more money for that. You know, um, out here, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in a Trader Joe's parking lot in California. Sure. There are markets where I think people will pay a bit extra for an environmental advantage. And it makes you feel like you're doing something good for the planet or this idea of saving the planet, which, you know, <laughs> you know we don't save the planets the other way around, but, um, No, what you said just now. So I think what most people really care about is trying to give their kids the best food that they can and um, the most nutrients that they can. And when you look at something like the the Patagonia study of an orange from 50 years ago to now, nine times more vitamin A 50 years ago than today in an orange. That's one tiny example. When we measured our pasture poultry against barn grown kind of outdoor access chicken, you know, three times higher in omega-3s, way closer omega-3-6 ratio, 21% lower in saturated fat, 50% higher in vitamin A and E, six times higher in a lot of the you know, micronutrients like glutathione and a, a ATP, creatine, you know all these like supplements that you'd buy over the counter. Um, I think when those messages start to get out, that sure, you're paying a little more dollars per pound um, for this kind of a product, but what you're getting in return is a far cheaper, you know, if you looked at dollars per nutrient density, it's far cheaper um, than buying these conventional products. So I think when when we can start to quantify that more and show people more of that, you're going to see more widespread adoption. And if the numbers are real, I just don't know too many moms that wouldn't spend a little bit extra to get their kids something that's better for them. You know, Um, I'm not going to say everybody will do it. Some people are on such a tight budget that they're just eating to survive. And mm-hmm. for those people, I think the conventional model is actually brilliant. You know, making food abundantly available and as cheap as possible for people that truly can't afford anything more than, you know, the the paycheck to paycheck. I get that. But I do think there's a big subset of people, more than 50% of people that would spend a little bit more um, for a product that's actually much better for you. Um, and that's kind of the the market segment that we're going to go after. So I think you'll see our products in your mid-level retailers. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's limited to like a Whole Foods kind of situation. I actually don't even, that's not even really my goal. My goal has always been the Trader Joe's, the the kind of mid-level consumer that's willing to spend a little on on better products, but they're not going to go break the bank. You know, they're a regular blue collar, you know, they're trying to keep, a family afloat and do you know afford rent or a mortgage and uh and they they do want to eat a little better but that for that family it can't be 35 for a whole chicken it just as much as they want to feed their family healthy they can't afford that so and they don't have time to go necessarily to a farmer's market on a saturday and go do all this stuff they need to be able to get it from the store that they're used to shopping at so it's not just affordability, when we say accessibility, it also means we got to get these products in where real people actually shop too. you know,
0: That's it. And that's a whole nother discussion is, you know, like you said, a lot of farmers are struggling with uh, how to get to market, you know, whether, you know, farmers market, and that's a tremendous time investment and those kind of things. And then the online models help some, but you know, the, the cost of delivery and every business that's gone through that cycle of, delivered to the doors, that final mile
2: is is still a huge problem in any, any industry. Yeah, I'll tell you who really made out the best on that one is FedEx, you know, they're the ones that made all the money on that whole movement. And Primal Pastures is our family's original company, they still do the home delivery model, I think it's really special. We're really looking at that on bringing more of the deliveries in-house and um, keeping them more localized mm-hmm. and serving our own community really well with a low-cost in-house delivery as opposed to just putting it on a FedEx truck. Yep. Um, that works in some markets. For the guy out in rural Kansas with you know 1,500 people within a two-hour radius, it's not going to work real well. So Correct. so much of this depends on that SWOT analysis, you know, and you got to look at what makes you unique and what makes you kind of special and how do you leverage that to the max?
0: Well, anything else we should have touched on today while we were together?
2: Um, <laughs> we're really excited about this. Um, we're doing a lot with the live feed now. So transparency, I think is key to, to, to combating greenwashing. And, uh, what we've started doing try to do it about once a week is we actually go live on our website. Um, I bought an iPhone and kind of a tripod and set up this whole thing where we just go, you know what, nobody else is willing to do it, but we're really willing to do it. So we just start a live stream in the morning and uh, we run inside of the coops for everybody to see. We're not hiding anything. We're not doing anything different on those days. You just get to see the birds inside of their natural environment. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited about that piece of it because transparency is really important to the next movement within food and then um you know we've been working really hard on passionbird.com too we do have our own version of like a home delivery kind of service and stuff like that so if anybody wants to check that out and try our products you know that's the best place to do it and um we ship to all 50 states at least 48 states and uh, we've got some really cool packages and bundles and some different things and then a lot of just really great content on there as well and what i always end with is i'm a kind of deep theological, a little bit believer in this whole movement. And so it's not all about us. Um, Pasture Bird is one of many that I think are doing things right right now. And um, I would say if there's a local pasture poultry farmer in your area, do whatever you can to support that farmer first. And we, we serve as the backstop and we serve as the sort of wholesale supplier for that big grocery store down the street that, the local guy could never sell into. But um one resource that we really loved, I hel- I helped um build this with Appa was getrealchicken.com. And that's a listing of nation and, and really worldwide um real pastured poultry farmers doing the real thing. Many of them will not have the sexy packaging or distribution or any of those things. You may have to drive over to the farm and pick it up. Um, but I'm a big believer in local and and supporting you know the niche guys first. And then if if you can't, or, or there's a reason, then then come by from us, you know,
0: mm-hmm. I agree with you all ships rise, you know, so
2: yeah, exactly. We're
0: all in this together to, to really help people eat better and and help the soil and as a result, the soil gets better too. So, yeah, uh, fantastic. Thank you for all of your your time today, but but most importantly, the the thought, the innovation, the perseverance you've had to make this happen. You you're a trailblazer, and, and you've done some amazing thing that everybody in the pasture poultry industry is benefiting from. So, Paul, we we really appreciate all your hard work.
2: I appreciate that, and you know, it's it's far from just me. We've got an awesome team here at Pasturebird, and I really stand on the shoulders of the Joel Salatins and the Alan Savory's and the Gabe Brown's, which have, um, they've set the table, you know, perfectly for younger entrepreneurs to come up and innovate for this next wave. So we're we're just excited to be part of it. And thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Take care.
1: Thanks for listening today. You know how we love bringing you conversations with folks that have that can-do attitude that are breaking down old paradigms, I'm impressed with how they continue to seek solutions and also work with other growers to learn from as well as share their knowledge with each other. And to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm and there you can click on the links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn.